following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. And so we are finishing up really today this series that we've done just over the past few weeks through Advent, working through just the very first part of Matthew's Gospel and listening in on the way that Matthew tells the the Christmas story, the Advent story, and so that passage that James and Jesse read out is from the beginning of Matthew 2. So if you've got a Bible, that's where we're going to be, the beginning, the first couple of paragraphs in Matthew chapter 2, and this is the story of the wise men, the so-called wise men. Uh, I don't think they're wise to get mentioned, but the wise men are definitely in there. Now, I don't know, if, if some of you have seen and, uh, any fans of the program Mythbusters? You know the program? So you know the basic idea, right? So there's, uh, there's some kind of theory, some kind of hypothesis, uh, and that is put to rigorous scientific examination in order to see if it is really true, in order to see if it really holds water, that kind of idea, right? So this morning we are doing Mythbusters Christmas Edition, all right? And specifically, we are focusing on the story of the wise men, we're going to do some myth-busting around that story, because for some reason... It is that part of the Christmas story, these three wise men, around which there has grown up a lot of tradition, uh, a lot of, shall we say, extra-biblical material, uh, like the wives of the three wise men. And that's all good fun. Uh, But there's all these sort of ideas and theories and then things that just become accepted that we think are then part of the story that aren't necessarily part of the story. Uh, I mean, in tradition... Uh, as it grew up, in the first few hundred years of the church, these guys were even given names. You heard those names this way. Uh, whereas the Bible never tells us the names of these, of these people at all. So there's all this kind of mythology uh, and legend and tradition that has grown up. And what I want to try and do with you is push through a bit of that and come back to the story and try and look at it as faithfully and accurately as we can in terms of the way that the Gospels present the story of these three strange, mysterious travels. From a far off land. So, Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to be right at the beginning of that uh, chapter. The very first verse is really the key verse, and this is the verse that gives us pretty much the only information that we have about who these characters were. Uh, verse 1 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Okay, so here's the first thing, right? How many of them were there? How many, how many wise men? Oh, very smart. What a, what a smart congregation you are. We don't know, right? Now, I know the three is the traditional number, but where did that come from? Uh, we don't know. Tradition emerged, things were said, stories were passed on, the number three, but we don't know. We don't know if it was three. It may have been four. It could have been two. It might have been 500. It probably wasn't 500. But it was some number, maybe it was three. We just don't know. All that we're told is that there were these magi, there were these this group, there was more than one of them, but we don't for sure know that it was three. Now, have a look at the name that they are called. What do we tend to call these guys? Right? We think of them as wise men. That's the game. Uh, a name's not in the Bible, it's a tradition name. And that maybe say something about who they are, but it's a bit of a bland term, just three wise men. The other way that we tend to think of them as kings, you heard that like we sing the song, we three kings of Orient are, and they're often thought of as being kings 
But again, that's not the way that they're specifically described in the Bible. They had some connection with kings, but they weren't kings themselves. The word that's used in Matthew 2 is the word magi. Uh, untranslated word, which is, which is good, because it's difficult to translate that into any one word. There isn't an English word that works, or even a couple of words that work perfectly. The best you can do is describe who they were. The Magi were a group of people that existed in many different nations in the ancient world. Many different kingdoms, especially kingdoms of significant size, where there was a monarchy and a royal court. And these guys would work in the royal court. So they would work for the king, but they weren't the king. Does that make sense? They would work as advisors to the king, but they weren't royalty themselves. And the role that the Magi had was kind of a bit of a combination role. You had to be quite multi-talented. There was a bit of astrology involved. So you had to be good at reading the stars, and they would interpret the stars in all kinds of ways to mean all kinds of things, right? Hint, hint, this is where our story is going. Uh, they were also priests, the Magi, and they would make sacrifices to whatever gods this kingdom happened to worship. And so they had that role as well. Uh, they were really good at interpreting dreams. It was another part of the Magi's role, so they were expected to understand and know what the, the king's dreams meant, right? That could be very handy. And they were advisors to the king. They were like royal aides. And so this is probably, that's probably where the term wise men came from. They, they were expected to have wisdom to be able to give counsel to the king. Now, if you want a reference point for who a Magi was or what kind of role they had in the Bible, a really good person to look at is Daniel. Daniel in the Old Testament was essentially a Magi, uh, working in the Babylonian court, working for Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. And Daniel was taken in, he didn't choose to be, but he was taken in there, and uh, he was trained up in the ways of the Babylonians and the arts and the culture and all of that. And he was a wise man, and he was an advisor, and he was one of the king's most trusted advisors. So if you look at the story of Daniel, if you want to dig into that, keep in mind, he's basically functioning as a magi within that Babylonian system. That's essentially who we're talking about. Now, what about where these guys came from? Well, Matthew tells us, very vague, he just says, from the east. That's what we get. Just from the east. He doesn't pin it down. So, best guess, uh, Jeff and I were talking about this because that's what you're talking about as well, isn't it? The location of the Magi. And I think best guess, either Persia or Babylon. Uh, Babylon would be a lot closer. Persia, up to maybe a couple of thousand kilometres away from Israel. So, really significant distances. We don't know for sure where they came from, but some kingdom to the east far, far east of Israel. And it's interesting, I think, that Matthew deliberately leaves it vague and that he just has this sort of mysterious term, from the east. And I think, biblically, that's quite purposeful. That if you think about the biblical story, often the east is a place that is far from God. It's away from the presence of God. It's away from God's people and God's land. When Adam and Eve left the garden, they went to the east. It was the eastern gate that was closed behind them. When Cain was expelled from the presence of God, went out from the presence of God to the east, we are told. And often the east is this place. It's, it's, a, it's a strange, mysterious land, and it's away from what God is doing. It's often a consequence of sin that someone goes off to the east. And so 
Like that you could hear in this little reference to where the, the Magi come from, this, this hint of what's going on in the story, that they are from the East, that now you have these men coming back from the East. This place where often people are sent away from God, and there's this little hint in the story, now God is welcoming us back. As people who are estranged, as people who are far from God, this king who's coming into the world is one whose arms are open wide to every person, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people, especially those who are far from God, long way away, alienated from the purposes of God. They're being welcomed back now. They're being brought back in. I hope you can hear that. This little mysterious reference to the East. Like the East. And so, you have the story where these Magi, however many were they were, uh, from Babylon or Persia or wherever they came from, at some point, they, they saw the star in the sky. Now, there's a whole lot of theories about what the star was. We will be here till dinner time. If I took you through every theory, if you want to dive into the Chinese Astrological Journal and look more at this, you could do that. But if you're a real Bible nerd, this is a great rabbit hole to go down. What was the star? All sorts of theories. Maybe it was a comet. That's one theory. Uh, possibly. It's a little bit hard to believe that a comet then stopped right over the house where Jesus was born. But again, God is God, right? So he can do what he wants to do. I wonder whether maybe this wasn't just a purely natural phenomenon. God could just as easily have created the appearance of a star-like visible thing in the sky and moved that to lead the, the Magi on their journey. So it may have been an existing natural phenomenon like a comet. It may have just been something that just God did miraculously to intervene and provide a point of reference, a visible point for these, these wise men, these magi, as they went on the journey. We don't know. We've got to leave that one as a question mark, and maybe one day that could be the first question you ask God when you get to heaven. What was the stuff? So, these wise men, these magi, I'll try and call them magi, set out on their journey. Now, here's another myth, another myth-busting moment. The journey that they would have taken from, let's say, Persia, was a couple of thousand kilometers, right? Now, if you work this out, I mean, they're on camels. They're not, they're not setting any land speed records here, are they? They're going, it's a fairly slow journey. This would have taken months and months and months, maybe up to six months, maybe more than that. So the problem is that when, like in your, in your nativity set, if you have a nativity set, you've got Jesus there on the night that he was born, and you've got the shepherds there beside him, and you've got the wise men right there. As if everybody just came to the party on the same night. In reality, the wise men had only just set out from their journey 2,000 kilometers away at that stage. So you need to get those wise men in your nativity sets, put them at the other end of the house, <laughs> represent the journey. And then over the next six months after Christmas, gradually move them down the hallway. Uh, that would be the historically accurate nativity set. Uh, so still a lot of question marks, but this was a big journey. So these magi would have arrived maybe six months or more after Jesus was born. There's no way that they were there on the night. So they make this journey, arduous journey, based on a star, based on obviously knowing this was significant. I mean, they knew that much, right? This must have been an incredibly obvious and important sign. They recognized this is royalty, above all royalty. So they're prepared to make the journey. And they finally come to Israel. And the first place they go when they get to Israel is not Bethlehem. It is Jerusalem. 
You come to town, you go to the capital city, uh, and you go and see the king because they, they needed directions. Um, maybe at this point they didn't know specifically where to go, and so they come and see King Herod. They figure he would know where this baby's been born. And so they come and they say to King Herod, uh, verse 2, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, when we read those words, it all sounds simpler. Sounds well-meaning. King Herod heard this, and his blood boiled. Because Herod thought he was the king of the Jews. That's exactly the title the Romans have given him. The king of the Jews. When they put him in that role, they instated him there as the king of the Jews. So now, for Herod to hear, oh, there's someone else in town who is the king of the Jews, the real king of the Jews, he did not take this well. Maybe if he was a faithful uh, follower of God, he would have rejoiced that this was the coming of the king, the coming of the Messiah, but it was the opposite. He saw this king as a threat to his power. Immediately, he saw this king as a threat to his throne. And the way Herod had dealt with this before was putting people to death, and that's exactly what he tried to do in this case. It was actually a little bit worse than that for Herod, because if you look really closely at what the Magi say, they say, where is the one who, had, who has been born king of the Jews? Herod was not full-blooded Jewish. He was not even born as the true king of the Jews. His mother was not a Jew. And so Herod had always been seen as this kind of half-blood, kind of half-in, half-out character, and that probably added to his insecurities. And now he hears of the one who has come, who is born right from the beginning, true full king of the Jews. And so that just tipped Herod over the edge. At that point, he just vowed he will seek out and he will hunt down he will find this child and he will take him out, whatever it takes. And so Herod then gets together all of his own magi, essentially, his own wise men and wise counsellors, and he finds out from them the place that this child is to be born. And they go back and look at the prophets and they find, oh, this is both Bethlehem. This is where is going to come from. And so here it says to the Magi, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Off you go and worship him, and then come back and tell me. Come back and tell me that you've found him, confirm to me his precise location, give me the coordinates, and I too would like to go and, quote, worship him. And we all know that his motives were not to worship Jesus, but he had another plan entirely. Meanwhile, these Magi set off, now they know roughly where they're going, and they head towards the little town of Bethlehem. It was a little town. It was nothing like Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the big city. It's where the action was. It's where the temple was. Bethlehem, very out of the way. It wasn't far away, but it was a small little village by comparison. So the wise men are following this star or comet, whatever it was, and it stops. We're told it stops over the house uh, where they were staying. Rosen went ahead of them in verse 9 until it stopped over the place where the child was. Uh, that word place is the Greek word oikos, which literally means house, which is another little myth-busting moment here. We kind of think of the Magi as coming into the stable full of animals where Jesus was, but the word is house. So when they came to visit Jesus, this was a residential house that he was living in. This was a private dwelling. So the most likely scenario here is that when Jesus was born, he was probably born in the, the kind of basement animal shelter in somebody's home, not an inn, not a motel, but just 
a private residence, but underneath where they kept the animals, this kind of dugout basement area. And then at a certain point, maybe after everyone left town, after the census was over, the family who owned this home brought them upstairs and offered them some decent accommodation, offered them a better room in the house because they still couldn't travel for quite a long time. But the family, if you owned this home, you wouldn't have wanted this mum and a newborn child down in the basement with the animals, so they brought them up into the main living space. So it's entirely likely that for several months, the first several months of Jesus' life, Mary and Joseph and Jesus were living with a family in Bethlehem as part of their home. We can't be sure, but that seems to be where the text is pointing. And they were brought into this family, and this generous family hosted them, showed them hospitality, until they were able to travel. And so the Magi come to this this home, they come to this house, and finally as they come in, they see Mary there with this newborn baby, maybe not newborn by this stage, several months old, could have been a year old by this stage. Maybe Jesus was sitting on Mary's knee by this stage. They come and see him and they realise that this is the one that they had been sent to worship. It must have been a bizarre experience for them. They would have been expecting probably a palace. I mean, this was a, this was a king. They would have been expecting royalty. They would have been expecting palatial surrounding. And here's a very, very obscure house in a very, very obscure place. But they realise this is him. This is the one that we have been sent to. And so, they open these gifts that they bring to Jesus, and we know this is a familiar part of the Christmas story, isn't it? That these magi brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. But let me just tell you a little bit about these gifts that they brought, because it opens such a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. So they, they, they present gold. Gold is the gift that you would give to a king. Gold is the, is the symbol of royalty. It's the, the, the king of metals. And it is the gift that is fit for a king. And so this gift of gold symbolizes Jesus' kingship. It represents Jesus being the king, the king of all kings, true royalty. And then they give frankincense. Kind of an unusual sort of perfume to bring out. But do you know where frankincense shows up in the biblical story? It's the work of the priests. Through the Old Testament, often, when there's sacrifices that are made, the sacrifices are accompanied by frankincense to provide this sweet-smelling aroma. When the, when the bulls and the goats were killed and the sacrifices were offered to God, it would often be frankincense that was there to help it all smell a little bit better. And so this is a priestly perfume. You see what's being said here? This idea that Jesus is not just the king, but he's also the priest. He's the one who has come to mediate between us and God. That's what a priest does. Represents God to the people, represents the people to God. That's exactly the role that Jesus plays in our lives. He represents us to God in all of our brokenness. He brings us to the Father. And he represents Jesus to us, uh, God to us. Brings the Father, his presence, into our lives. So Jesus here, in the gift of the frankincense, we're being told Jesus is the one true great high priest. And then thirdly, the gift of myrrh. Now what is myrrh? Myrrh, traditionally, was a spice associated with burial. When someone was buried, when a body was embalmed, you would put myrrh. In fact, in the Gospels, later on, you can read, myrrh is mentioned again, when Jesus' body was embalmed, and when he was wrapped and put in the tomb, it is mentioned that one of the, one of the spices or the embalming lotions, perfumes that was placed and given to Jesus was myrrh. It's this beautiful little flourish in the biblical story that at the beginning of his life, and the end of his life, Jesus receives myrrh. So 
bookends the gospel story. And so myrrh points us beyond just the birth of Jesus, all the way to the cross. And it reminds us that the Saviour who was born, this King who was born, was a King who was destined to die. This story, heartwarming though it might be, ultimately leads to the crucifixion and humiliation of Jesus. That's where the story is going. We get this little hint of it right at the beginning with the gift of myrrh. So you put those three together, and it's, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel, really, isn't it? Like we see this picture of who Jesus is here through the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. He is our king, he is our priest, and he is our sacrifice. He is the great king, he's the great high priest, and he is the one who has come as an offering for sin. It's a picture in the most humble of circumstances of who Christ is as our Saviour and our Lord. And so in view of all that, what's our response? How do we respond to this? You and I, here we are in the 21st century, reading this story. It's an old story, familiar story, but what does it mean for us? And I want to suggest to you today that our response should be exactly the same as it was for these Magi 2,000 years ago. Here's what we read in verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Simple phrase. They bowed down and worshipped him. And here we are, the passage of time in a different part of the world, totally different culture, and yet that is exactly the same invitation that Jesus gives us today. We would come just as those Magi came, and we would bow down and worship him as king and sacrifice. And that doesn't just mean singing a song, and it doesn't just mean praying a prayer. It could be all of those things, but more deeply, this bowing down and worshipping God, it means bringing all of who we are, bringing all of your life, Everything that's going on for you today, everything that you carried in the doors here, everything that's on your mind, every part of your being, bringing that to God and bowing down and worshipping Him and handing the fullness of all that you are over to Him and saying, Jesus, I am yours. Life is in your hands. And then bringing all of our struggles, bringing all of our weaknesses, all of our frustrations, the things that are causing us stress right now, the pressure that we're feeling. Maybe the fear that we're feeling as we look towards the new year. Maybe the guilt, maybe the shame that you're carrying here this morning. All of that. It means bringing it honestly to Jesus. Not hiding, can't hide anyway. He sees it all this morning. He sees it to the depth of your heart. And it means simply coming in all of your weakness and brokenness to him and saying, Jesus, I'm here. I kneel down. I worship you. And I just give you again everything that I have. It means bringing all the good things as well. Not just the brokenness. The joys in your life, things that are going really well, the accomplishments, things you're looking forward to about next year, bringing all that to and saying, Jesus, this is about you. And I just lift my heart again to you. And I fall down on my knees. As we do that, we bring everything to Him without hiding parts of ourselves, which we so often do. We bring it all to Him and we receive from Him again His grace and His mercy. We receive Him again as King. And we come under his rule. We receive him again as our priest. And we allow him to be our advocate before the Father. That's why First John says, if we sin, we have an advocate in heaven. We have Jesus standing before the Father on our behalf. We say thank you, Jesus, for that. And we receive him as our sacrifice again. We receive the free grace that he offers us. The forgiveness and the mercy that he pours into our lives time and time. 
You know that, that Christmas carol, O Come All You Faithful? One of the most familiar ones, right? And we sing the words and uh, we know it well, but I think often that song doesn't necessarily represent where we're at. O Come All You Faithful. A lot of the time we're not faithful. A lot of the time we're not joyful, if we're honest. And a lot of the time we're not triumphant, if we're honest. So we can sing these words, we can mouth the song. Sometimes it doesn't always feel like it characterizes our lives. A couple of years ago there was a, another song that was written by Sovereign Grace Music, and it's called, O Come All Ye Unfaithful. <laughs> I quite like it. That's more like me. I can connect to that. And this invitation to come in all of our brokenness. Exactly as we are before the King of Kings, bow down before him like the Magi did. Let me just read you a few words from that song. We're going to listen to it uh, as we take communion this morning. Just let those words kind of wash over you. But just let me read you a few of those words now. O come, all you unfaithful. Come, weak and unstable. Come, know you are not alone. Come, guilty and hiding one. There's no need to run. See what your God has done. He's the Lamb who was given, slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. So come, though you have nothing, come. Here's the offering. Come, see what your God has done. That's the invitation. The invitation is for you. It's for all of us, but it is for you today to come. Just as those Magi came 2,000 years ago, knelt down. And worship Jesus, the King of Kings. The invitation for you today is to come honestly with all that you are. Kneel before him and say, Jesus, I worship you. I love you. I receive your grace afresh. I'm not faithful, but you are. And I thank you. Grace is sufficient. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.